Hello, 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 hello. Test one, two. Test, test, test. Testy, test, test, test. Hello and welcome to The Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center at the London School of Economics. I'm Denise Barron, and so where are we going this week? Probably Maine. Florida. Ohio. Hawaii. Hawaii. Montana. New Hampshire. Washington. Not D.C. Kentucky. South Carolina. Iowa. Arizona. 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 New York State. New York. California. California and Oregon. Massachusetts. Pennsylvania, Nevada, and so forth. And Kansas. We're going out to the States. I mean, obviously not physically, but this episode, we're looking into this often overlooked level of American government. Americans interact with state laws and services fairly frequently, even if it's just the DMV or voter registration. But the state level of government remains somewhat obscured for those outside of the U.S. The states produce considerable public policy that has a massive impact on commerce, education, healthcare, and much of the things that impact people's daily lives. Plus, they do it without the extreme partisanship and stagnation that we see on the federal level. Yet it's the national or the federal news that dominates the headlines. Well, not today. You wonder why it is that uh, there's not a lot of media focus on the states. That's Jamie Monaghan. My name is Jamie Monaghan, and I work at the uh, University of Georgia in the United States. Jamie's an assistant professor of political science at the University of Georgia. I think that part of the reason for that is uh, national news is sort of easy pickings for having a large target audience if uh, the if actors in washington uh, are doing something then that's going to affect the entire nation right people from all 50 states are going to be affected and so they perhaps uh, worry that if they talk about uh, a proposed law in Rhode Island that, you know, people in the other 49 states, their eyes will just glaze over and, you know, they'll, they'll tune out. Every now and then we hear about a new state law here or a state ballot measure there, such as the transgender bathroom law in North Carolina or various ballot measures on marijuana legalization. But in general, news directly from state governments is relatively rare in national and especially rare in international reports. And yet, legislative news from state governments across the country is actually quite relevant to Americans. It's uh, a way you can think about policies that may be coming soon to a state near you. And you have to uh, dig down to, say, uh, newspapers at the state and local level and maybe local television news to to learn more about uh, politics of the states. But... Even then, you'll normally learn about the politics of your own state. You won't learn as much about the politics of your neighboring states or of states across the nation. Okay, so people just care more about what's going on closer to them, where they live. And the news just reflects that. There's no harm in that, right? To some degree, that's unfortunate because uh, as states are laboratories of democracy, and they do try new policies, and some of them succeed and some of them fail. 
Well, presumably it'd be helpful to know that if you pass some sort of new spending policy and it ended up wrecking the budget that, you know, other states presumably ought not replicate that. And you'd want voters to be informed that you don't want to do that um, and not reward politicians who are promoting a policy that's been known to fail elsewhere. Okay, so now we're getting to the heart of the matter. But before we dive into this idea of laboratories of democracy, we need to review the, the nuts and bolts of the entities producing these policies, the state governments. To start, you know, in each of the 50 states, uh, you know, Americans elect their own legislature, uh, they elect their own governor, and uh, and pretty much all 50 of the states uh, follow sort of a uh, their governments follow a parallel structure to what you see at the federal level with the uh, separate and insubordinate three branches that you see at the federal level. Um, and in 49 of the states, it's even a bicameral legislature, just like uh, you see in the um, U.S. Congress. Nebraska is the uh, exception. So state governments are, are basically structured the same way as the federal government with a House and a Senate and an executive at the top. But they're actually fairly different. You know, one of the key things we got to think about is that if we're looking at levels of uh, democracy and, and citizen involvement, uh, Americans elect these members of their state legislatures, which are uh, a lot closer to them. The, these constituencies are much smaller uh, than a constituency to the uh, United States House of Representatives, uh, much less the U.S. Senate, where uh, representatives are by whole state. And in some places, that level of government is very close to the people. You're talking about, you know, in a state like New Hampshire that's uh, fairly small in population, yet has one of the nation's biggest state legislatures, Somebody from your neighborhood is a member of your state legislature. You might not consider your representative in Congress a local, but your state rep is definitely going to be a local. There are about 700,000 people in each congressional district. So that means that each member of Congress represents about 700,000 people. But in a state like Illinois, each state representative represents about one-seventh of that. 100,000 people per district. And in a place like Iowa, it's even less. So there, each state representative district includes about 30,000 people. So that's 1 23rd the size of a congressional district. And just to compare it to the UK Parliament, each member of Parliament has about 70,000 people in their constituencies. So generally, that's in the realm of state legislative districts. And for all the talk we see about gridlock at the federal level and uh, lots of inaction, um, you know, on account of uh, inability to get through senatorial procedural rules or stuff getting stuck in committee, uh, you see thousands of laws being enacted at the state level. Uh, and so, you know, any time one of those laws is enacted, it, you know, it applies to the citizens of that state just like it would a federal law. So uh, we do see a lot of action uh, at the states, uh, in part because we see a lot of unified governments at the state level. Um, and also, you know, often we can see... Um, you know, uh, a little bit less polarization at the state level uh, in that, uh, you know, uh, 
that Democrats and Republicans in a certain state may not look like the Democrats or Republicans that campaign uh, for national office. Less gridlock, more policy. Whether that's because one party controls the state legislature or there's just less partisanship, the states are getting it done. And we see these states enacting a lot of laws. They are actually uh, uh, productive legislative entities. As Jamie alluded, the identity of political parties varies slightly state by state. So what makes Democrats in the South different from those in the Midwest and Republicans in the Northeast different from the GOP in the West? Well, uh, for, for starters, uh, if you look at the ideology of uh, uh, members of these state parties, you, you get into these interesting situations where, uh, say, Republicans in a liberal state like New York are going to be so liberal that they're going to be almost unidentifiable to Republicans in a more conservative state like uh, South Carolina, right? Similarly, Democrats in South Carolina are going to be much more conservative and, and practically unrecognizable to Democrats in New York. And so uh, what I think happens is that uh, at the state level, um, you know, you do still have a general sense that you know, Democrats are your left-wing party and Republicans are your right-wing party, but how far to the left or right uh, you can kind of tailor to the interests of uh, the constituents within your own state. Whereas uh, whenever uh, Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell, the leaders of the Democratic and Republican Party in the U.S. Senate, whenever they're hatching up their party's agenda for the Senate, uh, they have to think about uh, what's going to appeal uh, to uh, Democratic and Republican voters across the whole nation. And uh, and to a large degree, that's going to mean that they're going to have to uh, pursue policies that, you know, maybe wouldn't be very popular in some of the more swing states or uh, in some of the more opposition-controlled states. So, uh, some of the policies Chuck Schumer pushes over the next two years as, as the Democratic leader, um, you know, probably wouldn't be very successful in a, in a place like South Carolina that's, you know, very conservative. But, uh, you know, when he uh, formulates or, you know, or leads the Democratic Party in terms of what policies they'll pursue, he has to think about, uh, what's going to be good for Democrats who are running in New York and California, and then even in swing states that uh, are more moderate, like Pennsylvania, Nevada, uh, and so forth. And and it's not just the parties, though. It's not just the political parties. It's the institutions as well. Uh, the other issue is uh, some states uh, have fewer institutional hurdles. Um, you know, in the United States Senate at the federal level, uh, if you really want to pass something through the Senate, you need 60 senators to support it. And this this is where filibusters come in. You know, there's the rule in the Senate uh, called the cloture rule, uh, where it's understood that a senator may hold the floor uh, as long as he or she sees fit to try to filibuster a bill, basically talk the bill to death. And so in many states, uh, you have rules that are more aligned with more in line with uh, simple majoritarian rules, and, and you're less likely to run into these institutional type hurdles. 
So both politically and institutionally, many states are set up to decrease gridlock and produce policy. So with that happening in 50 different places across the country at the same exact time, you can see why. Many years ago, Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis referred to the states as uh, laboratories of democracy. Uh, and he said that uh, he, he thought it was, you know, great advantage of the American federal system that uh, one state could try policy and um, and I'm paraphrasing him a bit here now. And and then everybody else could look and see if it was a disaster or if it worked pretty well. Right. You can look back at American history and see when a policy emerges in one state, if it works well, it'll spread to other states and they'll adopt it. And sometimes even the federal government will adopt policies that started in specific states. Um, as a matter of fact, a uh, couple examples of that. In uh, 1963, uh, the state of New Hampshire was the first one to pass a state-sponsored education lottery. And the proceeds of the state-run lottery uh, went towards uh, higher education, tertiary education uh, in New Hampshire. And... This idea spread throughout the states over the ensuing decades to the point that now 44 of the 50 states have these education lotteries um, and use them to fund higher ed uh, with the revenue. Another example, uh, in the uh, 1990s, there's a, a very prominent uh, welfare reform bill. Um, interesting case of compromise where he had a uh, Republican-controlled Congress uh, pass a welfare reform bill, and uh, and uh, Democratic President uh, Bill Clinton signed uh, either either the second or third version of that that passed. But there was sort of this uh, compromising uh, compromise on the policy, uh, and that was based uh, to a large degree on some welfare reforms that have been enacted at at state levels uh, by a lot of midwestern states, and so. Uh, you do see uh, federal law often uh, drawing from what the uh, states are doing. So a good law can spread from one state to other states and from those states to the entire country. And since states make policy more efficiently right now, these laboratories of democracy constantly churn out great policies and politics, right? Well, not all of the time. So to dive into these questions of gridlock and and there's not even a word for easily passed legislation. I Googled it earlier. Gridlock and antonyms. But I'm joined now by my co-hosts Sophie Donzelman and Chris Gilson. So Chris is our state's issues aficionado. Um, and I guess that you started out getting into these issues as the managing editor of the U.S. Center's blog. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So for the last four years or so, I've been putting together what we now call a State of the States Roundup, whereas I read through a whole bunch of uh, state-level blogs and summarize them every Friday uh, for our readers who can get a sense of what's going on in the states. So sort of going beyond just the federal uh, national level of the U.S. and kind of trying to dive in a bit more closely and tell people what's going on. Oh, that's cool. And, you've, and you, you uncover a bunch of very 
left-leaning, very right-winning blogs. Those seem to be the entities that that's right put a lot of info out there online right. about different state politics. There's a lot of civil society groups as well locally. Often they will be a little bit left or right-leaning, but they sometimes try and at least strike some kind of balance. But the the left or right ones are far more common. Interesting. Okay. Well, so let's get started then on on kind of a question of of more gridlock. I guess when I when I came out of this interview with Jamie, I was thinking about sure there are definitely times when uh, legislation or issues move more quickly through le- state legislatures for the reasons that he said. But are there issues that are neglected on a state level? Like, does this produce a different version of state level gridlock that also stalls or prevents? legislation yeah i mean i think stalling or preventing is a really good point i mean often what happens in these state legislatures it will sort of go through and maybe even be go through the the assembly or the state house and the senate and then reach the governor's office and be vetoed the big reason for that is because we have what's called divided government in a lot of u.s states so it's when the governor is from one party and the legislature is is from another so for example, in uh, someone like Pennsylvania, the governor is a Democrat and the legislature is largely Republican. And so, for example, uh, Governor Tom Wolf in 2015 vetoed their entire budget. Um, Illinois, which is in the same situation, uh, well, sorry, reverse situation with a Republican governor, they haven't had a budget since 2014. So when there's divided government, there can be a lot of wrangling in between and a lot of things don't get done on really big issues. Chris Christie uh, recently uh, vetoed a voter ID law which was mm. really important uh for new jersey and so it's it's a way that that div- division leads to uh kind of its own sense of gridlock in, in a similar way actually to the gridlock that we do see in the federal and government that, yeah that's more like gridlock are there are there examples of kind of like neglect though as well because when you think about for instance um in certain conservative states there might not be the same impetus or drive to enact laws that grant more rights to transgender individuals right and then there's these sort of like gaps within within the national map in terms of rights and those i mean they can be in terms of if you look at what other states are doing so some states like california and things like that are doing lots of stuff on the minimum wage and some states are moving to to give the transgendered more rights and in in many of these legislatures if they're republican dominated they need to be seen to be doing something so the the legislation that goes through is very pro something or right, pro right. Uh, raising t- uh, sorry lowering taxes or pro pro business uh, pro like business it, yeah, and facilitating that kind of setting up businesses making yeah. it easier uh, and so the stuff that it's not I wouldn't call it neglect it just never turns up because the the state legislators in those states know that actually it's not going to be in their base or they're not getting lobbied from from, from their constituents from their constituents or local interests to to form these things so I'd say. Well, the stuff I look for is, you know, what are some states doing in kind of a uh, an action kind of way? What's happening in one state and what's happening in other states? And those are often very different along ideological lines. Right. So so to move on to some of the, the positive, or I guess, more proactive elements. I mean, obviously, there, there are many examples throughout the states of the state legislatures being much more fast, effective, efficient in their policymaking. Again, so it's the other side of the coin. So if when policymaking and legislating is difficult under divided government, it's really easy under unified government. And again, if you look at states like California, mm-hmm. New York, uh, states with a lot of people, but also tend to have, although not always, uh, democratic governors and democratic legislatures. Also, then, if you move to the south, places like Kentucky, Arkansas, Indiana, again, tend to have 
Republican legislatures, Republican governors, although not always. So in so in Vermont, for example, another place which is very uh, left leaning, they were able to enact single payer, a form of single payer health care. Right, right. Now that actually failed because it wasn't funded well enough, uh, but they were able to do that recently. And that was uh, just in the last couple of years, yes. wasn't it? Yeah, 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 exactly. And sort of held up and as, a, as an example of at least how to try and do it. That said, given that it failed, it meant that a lot of conservatives said, well, actually, it means that on a national level, this isn't worth it. Because if you can't right. run it in a state that's even as liberal as Vermont, uh, you know, it's, it's not going to work nationally. But in places like California, New York, in recent years, you've had things like increased minimum wage. If you think about gun control laws... Uh, you know, it's it's far more difficult to get a gun and to, to, you know, they don't have open carry, for example, in places like California, New York, because they're much more left-leaning because it's easier to get these bills through. Um, more recently, you have President Trump's sort of immigration actions. In response, states, liberal states have tried to enact more sanctuary city and right, right. and actually in New York, they want to become what's called a sanctuary state. So again, that's a very left-leaning thing. Now, moving to the right, in 2015, for example... Uh, a lot of states brought in uh, what's called uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Acts, REFRA mm-hmm, laws. Mm-hmm. So the national REFRA law was actually thrown out by the Supreme Court in 1997. This is a quick sidebar. REFRA law is essentially saying you have the religious freedom to deny service if you're a serving so or deny people, uh, you know, deny them business if you don't agree with their lifestyle or disagree with uh, on religious grounds. These are these are the laws that sort of sprung up um, around debates of whether or not bakers had to provide mm. wedding yeah. cakes for gay couples getting yeah. married. So in 2015, on the federal level, you have they bring in uh, Obergefell versus Hodges. The same-sex marriage ban is is lifted across the states, and so you have this kind of reaction amongst more conservative states with things like refra laws. And so again, in Kentucky, Arkansas, Indiana, they bring them in. And they're subject to a lot of debate in those states. But because they are a unified government, or at least you know part of the government is, is Republican, it's much easier to bring in. So legislation can come through very quickly and very easily in states like that in unified government, either on the left or on the right. So it's not just a liberal conservative sort of uh, axis we're talking about. Uh, it's, it can happen to any state where, where government is uh, sort of more unified. Right, right. I think that kind of relates to the beauty of what Jamie was talking about, states being the laboratories of democracy. And like you were pointing out, Chris, that when it didn't work in Vermont, we kind of knew not to try and implement that across the country. Um, But then if we're keeping with this laboratory metaphor, I think we can also kind of see states producing these Frankensteins. And like those refra laws, it works there. It's what the constituents want objectively. And under the eyes of the Supreme Court, it's not okay but because it's within its own kind of bounded state, it's okay, or it's passable, and it exists. I mean, what, what's really interesting is that in actually a lot of states, they're sort of testing the boundaries of what they can get away with. So even though we have same-sex marriage, a lot of states, I, I can't remember ones off the top of my head, but they're trying to bring in laws that would actually make uh, same-sex marriage illegal. Mm-hmm. Or kind of ways slightly around it. Well, they make it harder to obtain the right licenses, yes, and yes. they're not banning it. Yeah. They're just putting in a lot of barriers, yeah. much like the voter ID laws. Yeah, and I think Arkansas, for example, was trying to get out of marriage business altogether, mm-hmm. saying, actually, we're not going to issue marriage licenses, which, as you say, Sophie, will make it more difficult for mm-hmm. people to be married. Because if you say, well, actually, only sort of private providers can, then maybe they would then say, oh, well, on religious grounds, we're not going to marry marry these people. So, it, yeah, there's a lot of testing going on, and it's a really... The, the sort of the federal system means that these laboratories, as you say, can have so many different 
outcomes and that's not necessarily positive for everyone in those states because the states are big they have really varied populations and often it means that people can be uh, can have their rights sort of curtailed uh, quite legally actually it, uh, maybe this is just because i've heard quite a bit in recent months about the whole idea of laboratories of democracy particularly because under the trump presidency a lot of people anticipate that more is going to be happening along the state lines than rather than from the federal government but i'm kind of i'm kind of bristling at this idea of of laboratories of democracy recently partially because i think that it's a perspective that really only comes from looking at it in a macro perspective and it's not something that you necessarily feel when you're living in one of these states, particularly as a member of a, a small minority group. So, for instance, if, if you are living in a very left-leaning state and you are an ardent gun rights supporter, then it, it doesn't feel like you're living in this little you know laboratory, like one specific laboratory that's experimenting with one thing while other people experiment with something else. It, it sort of feels like, actually, you're living somewhere that is not enabling your rights as you see them. I mean, you can apply this exact same logic and framework to another issue and then on living in a uh, a right state as a, a more left-leaning person with a, a more left-leaning issue right so it just i mean there's something that's kind of like it, it makes it sound all great and fuzzy and warm to be like oh look at all these great different things that are going and gone across the entire country but then when you look at the the small specific examples of it there's actually going to be people living in states where their needs aren't being met because they're such small constituencies within the states that's i totally agree with that and i think that's kind of where i took issue with jamie's interview is that he viewed these states as unitary monoliths without really acknowledging that in a lot of states, there are Native American reserves. There's um, entire areas of certain states that only speak a different language and not necessarily just Spanish, but you can find Creole in Florida or Vietnamese is widely growing in the Midwest. And yeah, Denise, like you said, it viewing these policies as kind of dealing with individual states really neglects to acknowledge that these states are very heterogeneous and or can be, matters. and then the policy sort of ends up being very heterogeneous, right? Correct. Yeah, and the messiness of the federal government sort of reflects the, the messiness and the complexity and the diversity of the country. Mm. And, I mean, yeah, that produces, especially right now in such highly partisan times, a little bit more of difficulty in passing laws. But sometimes I think that there's a danger of, like, when you look at the ease with which things pass at the state level, especially in places where the partisanship is so skewed to one side or another it's like it just kind of allows for the big sort to continue to happen at an exacerbated rate but um, looping it back to this idea of divided and unified government so if you have say uh, a state that has real um, islands of red or blue in a big city then that can lead to divided government so while so a lot of urban areas are you know uh, democratic for example that can lead to increased democratic majority in the state senate sorry in the state assembly sometimes state senate districts it depends on how they're uh, sort of uh, positioned but then for statewide elections uh, you can have a governor right, who's in a right. different office and actually and it's something we haven't touched on and we could do an entire podcast episode on this in terms of the state judiciary mm. because you have state supreme court elections uh, as well, which, can, which are obviously statewide offices, and then they can reflect more. So if a, a state is more generally Republican, uh, like Pennsylvania seems to be moving towards-ish, maybe, um, then you can have a situation where 
those statewide offices are, are more democratic because of uh, because of what I've just discussed. So it's worth considering that, I think. So to wrap up, I just have a question for both of you guys about what issue or what policy area do you anticipate um, more momentum or more movement in the states than in the federal system in the next two, four, eight years? Well, if I can go first, I think if you you looking just quickly at the federal government, uh, you have the recent. So we're taping this in early April, and President Trump and Speaker Paul Ryan's uh, American Healthcare Act has just failed. So we're looking like we're not going to get a great deal of movement on on healthcare in the in the, from the federal level for the foreseeable future. So I would be looking for the expansion of Medicaid in in more right leaning states. So Kansas has just uh, agreed to push that forward, mostly because the kind of people who need Medicaid are the, are the poor and they were with the thought that actually healthcare might be under threat at a federal level. They think actually if we can get this extra federal money while we can, that's actually better for their own constituents. That's what I'd be looking for. I'm not sure if this is a policy per se, but I think under Trump, a lot of groups have been galvanized and they're angry and they feel under threat. And that in a way is kind of almost embodiment of the American spirit that when you get enough petitions and enough signatures, you can create a bill at the state level and really try and take that forward. So it's not necessarily a, a policy, but I do think that in the next couple months, we might see more people trying to really organize things from a grassroots level, which I think is really great. And again, do you mean like, like the ballot measures? Correct. Yeah. 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 Um, and like, I mean, it's very Davy Crockett. It's very entrepreneurial. <laughs> it's it's what Americans are supposed to do. Um, I think that's great, but hopefully that will lead to positive outcomes. And that's it for the second episode of the second season of The Ballpark. It's like our golden birthday, but only in podcast terms. A big thank you to Jamie Monaghan, whose accent added a much-needed element of geographical diversity to our podcast and whose insight could have produced a much longer episode. The Ballpark is produced by Denise Barron, that's me, with contributions from co-hosts Sophie Donzelman and Chris Gilson, and also with help from the LSE's annual fund. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. They're the cat's meow. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. You can keep up with us on Twitter, tweet at us at LSE underscore the ballpark, and you can find us on Facebook by searching for LSE United States. Tune in next time when we're going to be talking about foreign policy in the Trump era. President Trump seems to view the world in zero-sum terms, which is why I think it's more America only than America first. And perhaps... As Yogi Berra used to say, it ain't over till it's over. And now, it's over. Thanks for listening. Alabama, Arkansas, Ohio, Alabama, Iowa, Arizona, Ohio, Arkansas, Iowa, Ohio, Alabama, Arizona, Massachusetts, Ohio. probably Maine, and Kansas.